We're in a series that's called The Fiery Trial. It comes out of uh, the book of First Peter, and uh, we're in chapter 3. We're looking at verses 8 through 12. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn there with us. First Peter is near, near the back. It's all the way back close to the book of Revelation. And uh, it was a letter written by the Apostle Peter, the very one who walked on water with Jesus, the one who denied Jesus three times. He's writing uh, to uh, followers of Jesus and telling them how to live. And what we've looked at in this series extensively is uh, this idea of trials, that essentially he's writing to prepare them and say, hey, life is going to be difficult. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you just uh, won the lottery and now all of a sudden uh, the yellow brick road is laid out before you and everything is simple and everything is good. He says, no, if you're following Jesus, odds are that your life is going to start to get more difficult uh, because you're, you're going against the grain of the world. And so for several weeks we've been encouraging each other but also um, just looking at it with reality. And over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at uh, the, the need to submit our rebel hearts to our God. And part of that involves submitting to earthly authority, which is something that all of us really dislike doing, right? It's, it just runs the opposite. We, we're, we're born as rebels. We're rebels by nature. And so, so to learn to submit, it's been, man, I'll be honest with you, it's been a couple tough weeks of preaching. It's been good, but it's been hard. And so uh, I chose this passage uh, today I wanted to keep it short because of the baby dedications, and I knew I wouldn't have a long time to preach, so uh, you can thank me later for that, right? <laughs> but as I found this passage, I found that there was, there was so much to dig into, but I still am going to honor your time, don't worry, right? But um, suddenly we turn the corner out of, out of trials and submission, and, and suddenly it's a passage that's about blessing, and it's about pursuing the blessings of the Lord, and, and, and a lot of times if you are a Christian, these messages can, uh, can go a lot of different ways, and we sometimes struggle with it. And let me explain why that is. Um, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we were dead in our sins, uh, that in our sins and trespasses we were dead, completely separated from God without hope. And, uh, and then uh, it says that while we were dead in our sins, uh, uh, God, because of his great love for us, sent his Son, and we were saved by grace, through faith, not of our own works, lest anyone should boast. And so the, the idea of being a Christian is that you are a, a broken sinner who has been saved and brought to new life uh, by Jesus. And so sometimes we think about this picture, we think that we're struggling in the water and we're just trying to keep our head above water and Jesus comes along in his lifeboat and pulls us in and rescues us. But, but the biblical picture is that we're not struggling to keep our head above water. We have sunk to the bottom. We are dead. We are fish food, right? We're laying on the bottom of the ocean and Jesus comes down, and he brings us up, and he resuscitates us, and he brings us back to life. Now, let me pause right there, because if you're here this morning, and you're at a spot where it's like, hey, that sounds kind of extreme. Um, I, you know, I, I have my struggles like anybody else, but I think overall I'm a pretty good person, so I don't know if I can embrace this idea that I'm dead in my sin. That sounds kind of fundamentalist and hardcore. Let me just encourage you. I invite you to check out for the rest of my sermon, Okay. <laughs> You have, to, you have to pause on this point, and you have to get this settled. The Bible makes it clear that we are dead in our sins, that, that our sin separates us from God, that we can't do enough good things to earn his favor, to earn his forgiveness. The debt is too great for us to handle on our own. And so to become a Christian means to acknowledge that your sin has brought death, but that Jesus brings life. So, so that's one ditch that we can, we can kind of fall in if we, if we were unwilling to accept that our sin kills us, that our sin has made us dead, 
then we think that we still have the, the possibility of saving ourselves. And so we look at God and we say, all right, God, how can I make myself right in your eyes? All right, what are the rules and the regulations and the lists in the Bible? I'm going to go try and do all those. I'm going to do my best to make sure that I do what God tells me to do so that he will forgive me, so that he will love me, so that he will accept me. And it ends up being what we would call legalism or pharisaism or, or judgmentalness. Judgmentalness? That's a word, right? Let's go with it, right? It, it's a judgmental spirit. It's, it's someone that says, hey, it's all about the rules. In general, I think I'm pretty good at keeping the rules. I notice that the people around me are not very good, and so I kind of look down on them. I don't accept them into the upper tier club that I'm in. But every once in a while, when I break the rules and I mess up, I get super devastated because now everything I built just crumbled. Everything that I was relying in, I'm not so sure, and so now I'm in doubt and I'm worrying fear, right? So this is a ditch that we fall in. The people who would say that they're a Christian would fall into because they're not relying on what the Bible has told us, that Jesus has saved us, that he's the one who brings us to life, that it's based on his work that we're accepted and saved, and so that it's not based on our own works, right? On the other side over here, we have people that willingly receive the message of the gospel, and, uh, and it says, hey, Jesus came and he died in your place and he died for your sins, so now because of that, if you just pray to receive him as your Lord, you will spend eternity with him in heaven. And they're like, man, that sounds great. Um, and so there's like, uh, man, I accept that, um, and it's awesome that he paid for all my sins because I've still got a bunch more that I want to do, right? So I've got them, and, and it's cool that it's just like it's a blank check, so I'm just going to kind of keep doing it, and, and so you just kind of take a low view of your own sin, and you kind of embrace, like, hey, I'm a sinner. I mean, we're all sinners. Hey, none of us is perfect, right? So, yep, I'll, you know, yeah, I sin, but, you know, what do you expect from me? I'm a sinner, right? Like, and so we, we own this identity of sinner more than we own the identity of a saved and redeemed and forgiven and loved child of God. And, and so it leads to a low view of holiness in our own life and sin in our own life. It leads to a low view uh, in sin around us. We're very accepting of it. It actually makes us feel a little bit better when somebody around us sin because they're like, oh, good, I'm not the only one. Yeah, okay, it's cool. It's, it's cool. Jesus got it, right? And it's this kind of cheap grace that, that isn't powerful, that's not transformational, that leaves us lost, uh, that leaves us uh, just weakened because the Bible says that our sin separates us from God. And so, so that's the other ditch that we can fall into. And so, so the trick is not to find this tightrope balance of like, okay, I don't want to fall into legalism, and I don't want to fall into just relying on cheap grace, so I'm going to try and walk down the middle and, uh, and do the sobriety check of the Christian walk, right? Where I'm, That's not what it is. What it is, it's actually a third way that's completely different than either of those. It's the way of the gospel. And the way of the gospel says this. It says that, that, that Jesus loved us so much that he died so that our sins could be forgiven, and so we're so grateful for that precious gift, and we recognize how costly it was for him. And because we recognize the cost of that, our desire is now to honor him and to love him. You guys remember if you've been in love in your life, right? You remember what it's like when, when you fall in love, and you just want to know everything about that person that you've fallen in love with. And so, so you, you check out their page on Facebook to try and figure out, all right, what are they into? What are they, how are they classifying themselves? Or if you're old school like me, maybe it was on MySpace back when I was meeting Trina, and I'm checking out her MySpace page, and, uh, uh, you know, or maybe going, uh, you know, further back, you would, uh, you know, follow their horse and buggy around. I don't know what you did, right? But you study the person that you love. You want to be like them. You want to know more about them. And the gospel leads us to love God in such a way that we just want to be close to him. And so it really helps us to begin to see sin the way that he sees sin. And so I promise you that there is not a single thing that God prohibits in the Bible that is good for you. 
If God says don't do it, if God says it's wrong, if God says it's not what we should do, he's doing that because he loves us. And though in the moment it may seem desirable, if we could see it the way God sees it, we would recognize how broken and how false and how worthless it is. It, it changes our mindset, and it actually becomes more desirable to follow his law. Let me give you an example. Does anybody out here like steak? Does anybody like to eat steak? I know this is a better Father's Day uh, metaphor traditionally, but I know a lot of ladies like steak, right? My wife being one of them, right? So uh, it's good. Thumbs up. Uh, <laughs> so I used to like to go out to restaurants and, uh, and get a steak, and, uh, but, but I, I decided I wanted to try and do it at home. And so usually for me, the first step in making a steak is take the hose and spray all the cobwebs out of the grill, right? Because I never use it. And then there's like old like cheese and stuff in there that's just gross. And so it freaked me out. Every time we did it, I was worried I was getting food poisoning. So I was like, all right, we can't do the grill anymore. So I bought, uh, I bought a grill plate to put on our stovetop, right? So it's like this, this grill thing, put it on there, put some good oil on, get it like screaming hot, turn the burners on high, right? And then you put the meat down there and it sears. But within like two minutes, our entire house is filled with smoke. The smoke alarms are going off. Our clothes smell like meat for a week. You know, people come over the next week and be like, oh, did you guys have steak? Yeah, yeah, like last Tuesday we did, right? It didn't work. It was broken, right? And sometimes, a couple times I, by the grace of God, got it just right. But then sometimes it was way overdone. Sometimes it was undercooked. One is well done and the next one next to it is rare. I didn't understand how was that right. So finally somebody told me, uh, they said, hey, the best way to cook a steak at home is in a cast iron skillet. And if you don't know this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you today, right? So... You get a cast iron skillet, you put it on the stove, right? You get it nice and hot. You do 30 seconds on one side, flip it over 30 seconds on the other side. Then you open up the oven, you put it in there. You do two minutes on each side. You take it out. Uh, I've done it a dozen times. Perfect, medium, rare, every time. It's delicious. The house doesn't smell of smoke, right? And so at this point, if I'm going to make a steak at home, there's only one way I'm going to do it. I'm not tempted to go back to the grill. I'm not tempted to go back to the grill top on my stovetop. Like, those things don't make sense to me anymore because I've found that there is a better way. And that's what God is trying to show us in his word, that, that when we see sin the way that God sees it, we recognize that there is a better way that has been laid out for us and made possible for us by Jesus Christ. And when you've tasted and seen that that's good, you don't desire to go back to the weak and flimsy things of this world. Now, this seems like a really long intro to what is going to be a 20-minute sermon, right? But, but what I want you to see, this is so important because we're going to talk about pursuing God's blessings today. And if you think that, that, that God wants to bless you, uh, if you think that God is your way of getting the things that you want in this world, you're going to miss the, the point of the passage. And if you uh, tend to be uh, the other way and you tend to be hyper-grace, you're going to listen and you're going to write me an email afterwards and you say, well, Ezra, you talked a lot about pursuing blessings and I'm concerned that you're going after a work sort of mentality. That's not what it is at all, right? The Christian life, when it's done correctly, is done with a, with a deep... Actually, I wrote this down because I wanted to get it right, right? It, it, it combines a deep confidence in our acceptance by Jesus and an urgent desire to live a life that is pleasing to him. The Christian life, when done in fullness, combines a deep confidence in our acceptance by Jesus and an urgent desire to live a life that is pleasing to him. We fully know who we are. We know that we're loved. We already know that we're accepted. And we can't wait to do what is good in the Lord's eyes. And we know that he's going to bless it because he's a good father. 
And we can't wait to see what he does with that blessing and how he overflows that blessing. But it's centered on Jesus. And so let's take a look at the passage. It's just a few verses. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Look at what he says there. He says, bless other people because you were called to do this. And you were called to do this that you could obtain, procure, ascertain a blessing. There's probably a more easy word for that, right? But you can get a blessing. That's God's desire. He's called you to do these things to get a blessing. And then in verse 10, he goes to quote Psalm 34, which we already prayed through this morning, right? In verse 10, it says this, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, I love what Peter does in just a couple verses here. If you notice, if you, if you kind of know your Bible a little bit, this is a New Testament letter in which Peter is writing. He's referencing Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where he says, hey, uh, you know, bless those who curse you, right? And if somebody uh, hits you, turn the other cheek, right? So he's referencing that, and then he's taking it back to a psalm. And he's kind of saying, all of this is God's word and God's will and God's desire for your heart. We don't ignore the Old Testament. We don't ignore the Psalms. We don't say, okay, yeah, that was all before Jesus, but now that Jesus, it's, it's, it's totally different. This is still a reflection of, of God's heart and how he wants us to call, uh, how he's called us to live in an even more full way than we could ever do without Jesus. It was given with the promise of a Savior. Now we do it with the reality of who Jesus is. And so with nowhere near enough time to dig into it, I'm going to show you a couple things that it says in here. And if you're a list maker or if you're a note taker, all two of you, let me, uh, let me lay this out for you, right? There's six results, there's five qualities, and there's seven actions that he calls us to. Six results, five qualities, seven actions. I wanted to start with the results because uh, in, our, in our leadership, we always ask this question, we want to start with why. Why are we doing what we're doing? Because if we know why we're doing it, it's going to shape what we do. It's going to shape how we do it. It's going to shape how we measure success. Keith brought this in. He read a book. He brought it in. It was a good idea. Um, but we want to start with why. So this is the important thing. If you don't know why, like why do these things, right? Here's why you should do these things that he's going to tell us. Number one, that you may obtain a blessing. God wants to bless you. And he says, I want you to do these things so that you can receive the blessing that I want to give to you, right? God wants to bless you. Number two, so that you would love life. We've gone through some really difficult teaching on trials and submission, and, and you might think, like, man, I guess the Christian life is just all about, like, putting on a, a good face and just enduring and just kind of suffering through life until we get to go to heaven. But, but he says, no, that's not what it's about. He says, this is about loving the life that you have right now, experiencing God's kingdom at work in your life, where you are today and ultimately into the future. Obtain a blessing, love life. Number three, that we would see good days. Sometimes when you're in the middle of a, just a really difficult trial, you, you think there's the, the sun's never going to come back out. You think the snow's never going to melt. You think the pollen is never going to dissipate, right? Like you think that you're just stuck forever. But he promises you that if you do these things, you will come through the other side. You will see good days. He promises that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 
If you live in a righteous way, God is watching. He sees. You may not receive earthly rewards, but you will always receive heavenly rewards because God sees everything that you do. And if you feel like your work is thankless and, and hidden and, uh, and humiliating, I want to encourage you that God sees it all. The one who's most important sees perfectly what you're doing. Number five, it says his ears are open to your prayers. And Peter makes, man, this is one of these things that we really got to process because throughout the letter of 1 Peter, he keeps talking about this. He says, husbands, honor your wife and seek to understand her so that your prayers would not be hindered. He says, live, seek holiness so that your prayers would not be hindered. Over and over again, he makes this connection between how are we living our lives and our prayer life. And so if you're here today, and, uh, and uh, now don't fall in the ditch on me here, okay? Don't fall in the ditch. <laughs> but if you're here and you're like, man, I'm really struggling in my prayer life. I feel like God is not hearing me. I feel like he's not answering my prayer. He's not saying what I want. Uh, is it possible that there are some things that you've allowed into your life that are hindering your prayers? Are you taking, are you taking sin lightly? Are you not taking seriously the impacts of sin? And is it possible that that is, is muting God's response to your prayers. Now, don't get over here in the ditch and say, okay, Ezra said, if I'm not living perfectly holy, God won't hear my prayers. That's not what I said, right? God hears all of our prayers. He hears every prayer. But sometimes your perception of his answer and your perception of his responsiveness and your perception of his presence is tied to how holy you're living, how well you're following the things that he's calling you to do. The last thing, it says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You don't want God to be opposed to you, right? <laughs> When you do evil, you're putting yourself in opposition to the Lord. And so we have a choice by our actions to put ourselves in alignment with the Lord or to put ourselves in opposition to the Lord. And so, man, those are some pretty compelling reasons. If you want to experience a blessing, if you want to love life, if you want to see good days, if you want to know that God sees you and hears your prayers and you don't want to be opposed to God, it says this is the things that you need to do. And here are the things, five qualities. He says, have a unity of mind. Riverside Church, uh, we're, I don't know, 18 years in, something like that. Uh, I think we've been blessed with an abnormal sense of unity in this church. Um, it, it's unified in a way that you don't see in a lot of churches. And, and I really think that there's one specific reason for that, and that's when it was planted uh, by Aaron Harvey. He said, hey, we're going to center this church on God's Word. This is going to be a church that centers on Jesus and it centers on God's Word, and everything comes back to that. And so if we're in a dispute, the question is, what does God's Word say about it? That's the final authority. We do what his word says. We don't argue about the color of the carpet. We like ugly old blue, right? That's, we're just, we, we've settled on it, right? We don't argue about disputable things. Even theological things that are disputable, we don't argue about that. We, we come together. Right? Uh, uh, there's part of me that loved this and part of me that did not like this, that, that when the last election came through, man, there were some adamant voices on Facebook and social media on both sides, right? There, there was left and there was right, uh, kind of, sometimes throwing it out there in a way that was not glorifying to God, but throwing it out there, and yet we would come and we would worship together on Sunday morning because we're unified around Jesus. And I think that's healthy in a church, right? We're not unified by a political persuasion. We're not unified uh, by, by some sort of level of comfort. Uh, the, the church has been blessed with diversity, age diversity, race diversity, uh, diversity of economics, because we're centered on the right thing. And so unity always comes from centering on God and God's Word. We're called to have sympathy. Keith did a, a good job of, of talking about this this morning. Mother's Day is, is a joyous occasion for some, and it's a really hard occasion for others. And we're called to rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. We're supposed to love one another. He goes on to say that we're supposed to have a tender heart. 
that we shouldn't see our brother or sister struggling and just kind of like, oh, you know, move on. Because what's the opposite of a tender heart? It's a hardened heart, right? It's a heart that says, hey, God, I see what you're saying. I know what you want me to do, but I won't change. I'm hardening myself against you. Man, that is a recipe for hurt. <laughs> if you want to experience trial, just harden your heart against the Lord. He wants us to be tenderhearted. He wants us to be, uh, exhibit brotherly love. Hey, this is Philly, right? So we should know all about brotherly love, right? The city of brotherly love. Sometimes that's an ironic phrase, right? But, uh, but here's the thing. We do show brother love. If, if you're wearing our team uniform, uh, we love you. And we love you so much to keep you accountable if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? Like, uh, love is not just always a pat on the back. Sometimes a love is a boo, a well-timed, a well-placed boo, right? And sometimes it's just mean and it's wrong and we need to repent. But, but we need to love each other. Like, you know, uh, I've, got, I've got my, uh, my family here. I've got my, my sister, my brother-in-law. I've got my brother. Um, I'm blessed to have a, a family that we love. And my parents are here too. And my in-laws. I could keep going, but I'll stop. But we love each other like family. We go through hard times. We go through good times. And that's what he wants the church to look like. The church should look like that. And last, he says a humble mind. We need to have a humble mind. Man, humility is something that will set the church apart from every other thing in the world because not many, very many people value humility, right? <laughs> humility is a lost, a lost uh, praiseworthy characteristic. And yet in the church, we're supposed to exhibit that. And so think about if you're here and you're, you're not inclined towards the church and you're not inclined towards Christians and you don't really like religious people, let me ask you this question. Those people that you're thinking of in your mind, uh, do they demonstrate unity or are they about division? Do they demonstrate sympathy or are they cruel? Do they demonstrate brotherly love or are they, uh, are they ambivalent? Do they have a tender heart or a hardened heart? Do they have a humble mind or are they proud and arrogant and self-righteous? If they're not this, this list, <laughs> then they're not doing what Jesus called them to do. And if you and me, if I'm not doing this, I'm not doing what Jesus called me to do, right? So, so we've got to look in the mirror first. Take the, the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of another. But this is what we should judge the church on, if this is the qualities. Finally, seven actions. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. Bless rather than curse. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. We summed it up over the past couple weeks in this way. Two wrongs don't make a right, right? It's one of those like memes that are out there. Everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten, right? <laughs> Two wrongs don't make a right. Don't let someone else's evil cause you to engage in evil. When they curse you, don't curse them back. Don't, don't give to them with the measure that they've given to you. Instead, reflect Jesus. And when we look at these qualities, isn't that what we see? Isn't that who Jesus is? And so our goal and our desire would be when somebody spends time with you, they'd be like, man, I'm, I feel like I'm beginning to understand more who Jesus is because I spent time with you. In your sympathy, in your love, in your compassion, in your forgiveness, in your humility, in your pursuit of peace, Man, that, that, made me, that makes me want to know Jesus because he's doing something in your life. And that's what we all should seek and desire to be like. That's what we want. He quotes Psalm 34 in the end, and um, he's basically quoting verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 34. But I, I want to show you that when it gets down towards the end of Psalm 34 in verse 19, it says this. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
He keeps all of his bones, and not one of them is broken. And we see in that a reflection, and the New Testament writers pointed to that, and they said, that's a picture of Jesus. And if you remember, when Jesus was on the cross, they were coming around, and they were breaking their legs to try and kill them more quickly. But when they came to Jesus, they said, no, he's, he's already dead. And so they put the spear in his side, but they didn't break his bones. And the New Testament writers say, hey, that's a picture of what, what, what was being shadowed in, in Psalm 34. And so in, this, in these four verses, Peter is, is showing us his teaching. He's showing us the teachings of Jesus. He's showing us the teachings of the psalmist, and he's saying, this is the heart of God for you. This is what you're called to do as a reflection of Jesus through the power of Jesus. And let me conclude by saying this. Does this sound impossible? If it sounds impossible, it's a good, uh, a good indicator that you are on the path that God is calling you to walk on. The things that Jesus calls us to are impossible without him. If you can't do this in your own strength, then it's a good indication that you're on the path that Jesus wants to lead you down. If you can't love your spouse the way Jesus is calling you to love, if you can't demonstrate submission to earthly authority, if you can't uh, be humble, if you can't resist repaying evil for evil, then you're in a position where you need Jesus to do it. And he says, I'm ready to do it. I want to do it. I've been waiting for you to ask. Let me show you a different way. Will you pray with me?